The Clinic Success Blueprint podcast, sharing a real perspective on what it's like to run a successful healthcare clinic. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Clinic Success Blueprint podcast. We are on episode two, so we're really excited to be back again. So as we mentioned last time with the Clinic Success Blueprint podcast, it's with myself, Louise Prattney, Oliver Wakefield and Jonathan Boxall. We are a team of three osteopaths located in the UK and we co-founded Osteo and Physio, which is the first osteopathic franchise company within the UK and currently have eight clinics in Somerset, Devon and Surrey. So what are we going to be covering in episode two? So episode two is all about how to build a loyal and thriving team in practice. And for me, it's it's so, so important to have a team that is that is thriving, that feels like they have that amazing career progression. If you want to build that amazing, successful private practice, because what it means is that you're keeping them loyal, you're helping them thrive. And so some of the key things that I believe that is absolutely vital for a clinic owner is you need to put stuff in place to allow that career progression. So for today, we're going to be talking about what it actually takes to keep your associates loyal and help them thrive in practice. Key career progression pathways, the biggest mistakes clinic owners make, why associates leave, because obviously that is a massive thing that's going to be impacting the growth of a clinic, how to mentor your associates and the key areas that new associates typically struggle with. So Oliver, hello, Hello. (laughs) over to you. I feel like it'd be great for you to set the scene today. So obviously you were obviously an associate before in Jonathan's original clinics and now you have multiple associates in all three of your clinics. What, what's the reality for you as a clinic owner in terms of hiring and having associates? Uh, so yeah, it's one of the hardest parts of of the of the job, yeah. uh, if you like, is uh, is the recruitment, the managing of the the associates um, across the, uh, my clinics in East Devon. I think there's actually fourteen of us, wow. um, soon to be sixteen. Um, the way the clinics are structured is that every clinic has to have a principal, mm-hmm. um, and the principal can only be a principal at one clinic. That is a rule that we have. You can't be a principal across two clinics. Sometimes there is a little bit of a crossover yeah. where someone might be setting up a second clinic um, but you know we have that that uh, for, for a number of reasons um, furthermore the principle of that clinic to be a principal they have to have at least three clinical days mm-hmm. at that mm-hmm. um, that clinic again for, for a number of reasons um, so the principles of um, of Sidmouth and Honiton like me all, we will work across um, a couple of clinics, um, but we spend most of our time in our in our main clinic. The reason for this is that um, clinics without principals generally struggle; um, they flounder. Um, why? Because clinics need leadership. Um, yeah. They need someone to be there to set an example. They need someone to be to be steering the ship, to be giving the the whole the whole thing direction mm. um and uh, and they need to know you know the, the the practitioners there need someone to turn to um when you know if something go something goes wrong mm. um and the other thing is that people like to be part of a team that's yeah. really really important and for a team you have to have a leader um it's, i think that's actually also one of the reasons why um clinic owners choose to be part of Osteo and physio, part of what we're doing yeah. is because they they are part of a team and because we have a common direction. Um, 
One of the most uh, difficult things that I find as a clinic principal is, um, and it's actually one of the downsides of, of what we do, is that our job is actually we're quite isolated in, in practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's very difficult to... Um, make sure that you're keep you know that you're going to meet all of your associates um, because you know we're like ships in the night you know you can work yeah. we can be working in the same same clinic in different rooms for weeks and not bump into each other um, I'm arriving when you're leaving and and so on, and so, on. Um, so that's that's quite a, a tricky a tricky thing um, and of course that's where the other things that we run so the in-house CPD is so so important the social meets that we organize the peer review the monthly case discussion that that you organise, Louise. Yeah. Um, I think these are these things are so so important. It's kind of bringing everything together, isn't it? And it's, you're right. It's like having that direction. You know, if everyone's kind of moving in the same direction, you're going to have such a better outcome, and people are just generally going to be a lot happier. So, obviously, Jonathan, you hired me, me and Oliver when yeah. we first yeah. started. And very um, very it, fortunate to have done that. Because you guys so were hired, outstanding. So you've hired so many associates. Um, what, what do you think? What makes like a loyal, thriving team for you? Um, I think what's what's really important. I mean, obviously, just standing back and looking at, at what makes a clinic a clinic successful. Mm-hmm. If you've got um, effective associates who are loyal and stay with you for a very long time, it it means that you're in a position to thrive much, much more easily. One of the, one of the biggest problems clinics have got and why they fail is because they lose their key associates mm-hmm. and their patients tend to fall over, fall away as a result of that. Um, what's what's kind of specific to our industry is that our our product is osteopathy and the and the and the but the product is kind of an individual mm-hmm. and the patients get very loyal to the individual. So getting continuity with your associates is very, very, very important. So being able to retain people is incredibly, yeah. in, incredibly important. So it's not, and we're in a market where um, it's kind of a bias market for musculoskeletal therapists. Everyone is competing for quite a quite a small pool. So not only have you got to inspire some, inspire the best people to come to your clinic, mm-hmm. but you've you've also got them you've got to get them to feel like staying there what is the key ingredient in that and i think the biggest word for me is trust um everyone and in order to inspire trust um the starting point is to think in terms of what are the needs of of the associate when when you found the right person they come on board what is it they that they need to feel in order to stay there and to retain um retain their confidence as it were um and i don't know if anyone's heard of something called maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah yeah, yeah. um i think almost <laughs> almost everybody has you know you, everyone has a basic need for air and then it's water then food then shelter etc but i i i think that um there is an osteopathic or a, a musculoskeletal <laughs> hierarchy of needs, <laughs> hierarchy of needs. <laughs> you could call it, I, I like that's got a ring to it right, that <laughs> right. um but and so the fundamental thing you know because everyone everyone needs to make a living and put foods um on the table um and when you're doing your job when you're actually earning that money um you need to have all the things at your disposal to do that mm-hmm. so um and then after that there are the more subtle things like feeling like you're learning is being supported um, in their endeavour to be more effective as an osteopath 
Um, I think often you know, when people come out of college, they have incredibly sort of uh, they, they they have very high aspirations about yeah. what their role is going to be in a patient's life, and then if they, they can often get frustrated in a job because they don't feel like they're being as effective as mm-hmm. they can be, and that kind of undermines their personal com- their personal confidence. So, if as a clinic owner, you can help to support their confidence and actually allow them to realise their vision for themselves, then you've really that is a very very huge win, and that helps build trust and helps their sense of security and continuity within your clinic. Um, and there's other things like Oliver mentioned, like feeling part of the team, feeling their career is actually going somewhere. That there's that there's a sense of profession, um, and also there are things like a, a sense of pride for working for an organization yeah. which they think the public trust you know and that they can feel be to be proud of uh, proud of working for someone that they feel proud of um so just in terms of straight off the first first two things um if they have a very clear sense that their success has been prioritized and that they are the most important person to their principal, yeah. then that's a huge, huge thing for trust and something which is fundamental to the way we run our franchises, that when we bring on new people, we always say they get absolute priority for new mm. patients. And it's not just something which is communicated to the receptionist. We also communicate that to the associate as well so that they know that they are the special mm. people and that we're really, really caring for them and looking after them. And we get, and we also keep a very careful eye on people when they're first starting out if there seems to be any issues with people not sticking patients not sticking Mm -hmm. with them for example or if they seem particularly anxious then we make sure that we're on it straight away so that they're that they feel very care um very very cared for um and the other thing is that we have very good systems in place to make sure that people receive a commission commission slip which gives them very comprehensive information about how their money's been earned so that there are no doubts they can cross-check that with the clinic management system and they get paid very very promptly as well i always think that um the number one thing you have to look after someone's money if you want to yeah. maintain their trust yeah. so yeah, that's is really important yeah i love that and it, and it is so true because everybody has different values they have different reasons for doing it i think going back to you oliver before we move on to the next part as well is it sounds like it might be quite overwhelming for a clinic owner you know you've got lots of things to think about when you're hiring an associate just based on what jonathan was saying there you could totally see why people really struggle you know you can see why people maybe are quite anxious to go from being an associate to a clinic owner because when you're an associate you're you're quite safe you're kind of in this clinic you're doing your own thing as a clinic owner you've got to think about all these different needs these different values you know all these different things it's yeah it must be just really tricky it is tricky but fortunately um i'm an osteo physio clinic owner so all of these things are pretty much <laughs> thought of for me yeah. um obviously i still have to execute my jobs um and i have to do them well but the structure and the instructions are in place on on how to do that so it is difficult but you know it's it, manageable it's very manageable yeah, yeah i love that and then if we go back way way back <laughs> to 2017 for me and you, Oliver, and I think it was 2008 for you, Jonathan. Um, Just thinking back from when you were a new grad and obviously coming out of university, you've done a four-year degree, you know, quite quite intense, really full-on, and then you've just gone into practice and I'd love to kind of have that perspective of of what was kind of important when when you started out and obviously what's important to associates because 
as a clinic owner and as an organisation, we've done so many different things to help our associates. So, for example, the key things for me for success and to build an amazing team, if I was an associate going into a new clinic, I'd want that environment that's set up for success. So like Jonathan says, in terms of marketing, I want to feel like I'm part of an amazing modern clinic. Um, I want to have training. So I want to have training on terms of what helps with kind of acute clients and dealing with chronic clients, you know, all of that stuff. And I want to feel like I'm constantly learning and developing. So for me, that was so important when I was when I was leaving university. So I would love to say, you know, do you feel like that's a kind of a fair breakdown of what new associates want and kind of what you wanted when you graduated yeah i think those um those are all fundamental things to to being a, a happy associate um definitely but there, i think there's a lot more lot more to it um I think I've I've mentioned this to Jonathan before, but when I came for my interview at Austin Physio all those years ago, I didn't really uh, I didn't really want a job. I wasn't really sure where I was where I wanted to be, but I yeah. thought it'd be good interview practice. Um, and then it was was during the interview that I realised actually this is an organisation that's got a vision, mm. and um, and I saw that it. It aligned with with my personal values, and I saw a, f- a future for me in this organisation. And I remember I phoned you up, didn't I? And yeah, after the interview, you're very and I excited. said, "You've got you've got to come down. And, you've got to come down and, and see this. See what these guys are doing. You know, it's absolutely um, revolutionary. Maybe a too strong a word, but it's it, it's groundbreaking. It's completely refreshing uh, and and different. And yeah, you've got to come and see it. And you did, didn't you? Yeah, and I remember. And I think Jonathan, you might not even know this story. So I remember that was back in the time of where Facebook was really really popular. Popular. So you were sending me like loads of messages about your interview after being really excited. Um, and I remember I already accepted an offer in East Grinstead, so where I'm from originally in Surrey. And um, after you spoke to Jonathan, um, you actually called me up and we were in one of the, the student rooms practising. So it was in fourth year. Um, and I remember you saying to me on the spot, you kind of gave me an ultimatum and you're like, right, you need to tell me right now if you're coming down for an interview or I'm giving it to someone else. Um, and I remember thinking, God, this guy is, yeah, what? What, what is he on? So I said yes, um, and I came down not realising how far away it was or what the company was about, but I just based it on your recommendation, Oliver, um, and how you were on the phone. So it was, it was those two <laughs> things um, that I came down, and it wasn't until I met you and we started talking and just thinking, you know, what's so important to, to a new grad coming out was I realised that I, I made the right choice, you know, joining a clinic where I was I was getting all the new patients, I was having that guidance, all that stuff was happening um, was, yeah, just, just so important. So remember, obviously, you started out obviously going into your own clinic, but do you remember kind of what the important values were for you as you came out of university going into practice, Jonathan? Uh, there, there were a few things. I mean, I, I think that <clears throat> you made you made a really interesting point about one of the things that excited you was the fact that I had a very clear vision yeah. about what a, what a what a what a clinic was supposed to be about, and I absolutely agree with you. I I have fundamental ideas about what it means to be a manual therapist and why we're actually doing how we bring how we enable people to have um, a better life and what the very important role of manual therapy is and also what the limits of manual therapy mm. is in um, in a patient's life and what our role is kind of to um, function alongside the life of a patient and bring 
health and satisfaction to the extent that we can into their lives. So everything that I've done in terms of developing clinic has been with those core ideas. And that's very much to do with um, the reasons why I originally became an osteopath that I had a previous career in IT and I've also started to run a, um, an internet business. And some there were some aspects of that that I did found profoundly unsatisfying. And I spent quite a lot of time thinking, what is it that's missing in my life and why why don't I feel that this is such a great thing to be doing? Um, and part of it was the physical wear and tear that it had on my body, but also it was about the relationships which I, which I had with patients. And so during my course, I spent a lot of time thinking, you know, how do I actually make lives better? And that <clears throat> sort of fundamental interaction with members of the public and how and what your role is as an osteopath isn't really taught or articulated no. on the course. So having given it quite a lot of thought and then started my own clinic and made it work for me and then bringing associates on board and kind of spreading that message, um, those ideas just became clearer and clearer in my mind. And, you know, and it's great because we have been able to grow very quickly around... Mm that that core kind of ethos mm. i completely agree jonathan because after after four years of university it wasn't until i came and joined osteo and physio that i finally understood what my role was as an osteopath <laughs> you know it sounds crazy doesn't it no, but it it's doesn't, it doesn't. you know i didn't really know what i was doing you know we learn all that we have all this knowledge these skills um but yeah it wasn't until i joined the company because they have such a clear ethos mm. for their practitioners for their patients and for the clinic owners and the other level, lovely thing, of course, is that we have spent a lot of time thinking about the how. It's not just about believing these days. I mean, but any, I mean, I think fundamentally human beings are wonderful, industrious, and um, innovative creatures. Mm. And once we've got a clear goal, then we do work out how to do things. Yeah. But we, but now that we've reached a kind of a critical mass, that how we've managed to document and think about and distill so that we do we have got um, <clears throat> the sort of fundamentals of how you interact with patients really, really well worked out. And Louise mentioned <laughs> about the mentoring programme yeah. for the associates. So we take it from an inspiring idea, which is maybe what brings somebody on board and gets them excited about mm -hmm. that. And then we put flesh on the bones and actually we use it to then give people successful and fulfilling careers. Yeah. And it is so much more than just, yeah, you know, you can get someone into the door to join your clinic. So if there's lots of clinic owners that are listening to this. It's not just about offering that shiny new position and that amazing percentage commission. You know, it's so much more than that. It's how can you nurture this person? How can you make this individual really successful because it's a win-win that person feels personally and financially fulfilled but at the same time you know the clinic's growing as well and I think one of the one of the best quotes that you've said on this subject Oliver is that osteopaths you know new grad new osteopaths they want more than just a couch and a busy list is what <laughs> is what you is said that one of the best things I've said is it <laughs> yeah. I'm going, I need to start trying ways. harder <laughs> Um, and it's so true. This is why we had to go back to the drawing board because, yes, our, you know, our clinics are really busy and we're getting people in. 
But if there's clinic owners that are listening to our podcast, you know, you've got to think outside the box. You've got to think about, okay, what can I do to really help this person thrive? So for me, obviously just putting myself when I first started, because I'm still working as an associate now, but when I first started, I wanted to feel like I was making a difference to people's lives. I wanted to be part of the discussion in terms of the CPD and in terms of kind of treatment plans and doing techniques with my principal, which was really important. I wanted to continue to develop my skills and my knowledge Um, and then like I said you know earning an incredible income being personally and financially satisfied so I think yeah just it's so so important so I'd love for you guys to put your uh, clinic owner hats back on for me if that's okay Um, and start to think about you know different therapists that you've hired that you've fired and that you've kept as part of your team because it's it's great if you can get someone in the door and I feel like the the situation we're in at the moment is because the demand for musculoskeletal care is so high a lot of the time as clinic owners, we might be bringing people on that potentially aren't right for our team, which can massively impact the clinic. So I would love to know kind of what what informs your decision? You know, why do you choose certain people to join your specific clinics? And yeah, whoever yeah, wants I've, to start. I think, yeah, you're, you've, you've touched on something really important there, Lou, is that the landscape has changed quite profoundly um, since the pandemic. There's a lot less, a lot, a lot fewer practitioners coming through um, and a lot more vacancies. And it's made our job uh, as clinic owners and recruiters quite difficult. Yeah. It's very easy to... Um, um, put someone in a position who is the wrong person just because I mean you, you've got a, a space in your diary you've got bills to pay um, and you've got patients that need seeing um, I made this mistake when I first started um, it was with a, um, a massage therapist and against all good advice from Jonathan mainly I took this person on and it it was it was terrible really it just didn't work he was the wrong person for the job and what I found out that actually it would have been just far better to wait a month three months even six months it's far more costly um, financially um, from a reputational point of view um, than than you know to take on the wrong person than it is waiting for the for the right person it's better just to have that room that room empty um, the other thing to think about when you're recruiting is that you have to be open-minded um, you don't want to choose someone just because you like them um, and um, don't discount them just because they're not necessarily someone that you would choose to to spend time with yeah. or because they treat in a different way or something like that you do have to be open-minded but at the same time you have to use your instincts you have to say you have to you know it's the, it's a true in every aspect of life you know if you have a good feeling about someone you have to you have to um, act on that yeah. I mean, and that's a, I, 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 what Oliver didn't mention is that we generally, we are very thorough in our interviews and we um, have a specific set of questions about, you know, which goes from what motivated people to come into osteopathy to their views on specific core values that the clinic holds dear, that sort of binds our DNA together. And what we're assessing during the interview is, to do they seem to um take these ideas aboard have we have we struck a chord to their eyes open do they look enthusiastic about these things or is this kind of going going over their heads um and it's it's very important you know, we we've learned to again use these 
these questions to get a real gauge, not just directly from the answers, but also a gut feeling, as Oliver said, about whether somebody's um, somebody's going to be good for the role. The other profoundly important thing is you've obviously got to think about the context of the osteopath. What is it that the patients are going to like about them? And um, the quality of their touch is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. We always get somebody to give us a bit of a treatment and people have come across incredibly well. And then they've got one of us on the treatment couch and sort of almost pulled our head off. And we thought, this probably, probably isn't probably a, not a good idea. This is a good idea. <laughs> And it, and it is interesting because I, I think you, yeah, I think people do get quite nervous at the interviews as well. So, but we don't yeah. Expect, you know, especially new grads, we don't expect them to be master practitioners when they first no. start. But you, as Jonathan said, you can get a huge amount from from how they lay their hands on you, uh, uh, how they pick up an arm yeah, or yeah. a leg. Or... Absolutely. And there's some stuff you know you can teach, mm. and other stuff where, where you you just know <laughs> possibly it's it's possible to teach it but it's just going to be too much hard work yeah um and you know you've just got to find people who fit well with your organization and with you and with you guys saying that obviously making it sound very easy if there's like a clinic owner maybe who's quite new to hiring what what kind of things do you pick up on you know you were saying there like you just you just know or there's certain things that you know that you wouldn't be able to help with is there well again it might be quite a thing difficult thing to answer but is there something that becomes quite obvious during the interview Completely yes. I mean, because there's 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 some there's some really clear things that that you know just from having graduated okay. that that you get examined on, and you can we do little things like testing, doing a little bit of clinical testing, for example, and also bringing in a fair amount of anatomy in clinical terms just to see if somebody is engaging with this stuff and understanding it, yeah. and if. And if somebody's face just looks blank, then you have to, you <laughs> have to ask the question: you know, How how confident is this person going to be? Yeah. But in the in the end, it's a it's it's a big mix, and mm. you and if you if eighty percent of the stuff is really really good, um, then you know, and you feel brilliant about the person, then often they can be great. Mm. And as you completely rightly said, sometimes people's minds just go blank during an interview. Yeah. Um, it's quite a high pressure situation, exactly. It's, exactly, yeah. and there's something something we do is if where we have had doubts, we've brought people in for a second interview with a mm. different practitioner who we feel is better qualified to cover the doubts that we had. So, for example, with a physiotherapist that Oliver and I interviewed as osteopaths, we weren't sure about their clinical knowledge, so we brought in a senior physiotherapist, amazing, who, who um, then with a specific brief to assess their clinical knowledge and she thought they were amazing. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it then put that doubt to rest and all the other good things then counted for much more. So yeah, mm. that's... And I think a one mistake that um, a lot of clinic owners or principals make, is, again, especially in the last few years, is that they don't really give a very tough... Um, interview at all you know this is feedback that we've had from our own practitioners who when we were interviewing them or after we've given them the job they've said well yeah I actually went to about 15 different practices <laughs> and I had an interview with all of them and actually you guys were that you gave me the hardest interview um it was the most professional it was the most wow. thorough and that's why I chose you you know it, it, where, where you've got that space in your diary that the space in your clinic it's very easy for someone knock on the door and say can I have a job and you just say yeah, why not? Yeah, it must be really hard. Are you guys like good cop, bad cop, or something? We try to. We try to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm definitely the good, the good guy. But it does. But it does raise another very important point, which is that an interview is not just about you deciding whether you're going to give for yourself a job. Mm. That person's got to make a decision that they're going to choose you as a clinic. So you are giving them a very strong sense of is this a place 
that I want to work and, you know, being very clear about what you're interested in and what your values are as a clinic will help them make a, a good decision about choosing you. Yeah, that's yeah, really, really interesting. And then just a, just another little point that I'd love to touch on before we look at the mentoring is um, just putting, again, just thinking about clinic owners that might be listening to our podcast. Um, wh- when do you hire your first associate? You know, so say you've been in a seed clinic and you've been running for a really long time and, you know, you're fully booked. When when do you take that leap? When do you when do you hire someone for the first time? And, you know, when, when are you ready? Well, I mean, Jonathan can probably go into some real sort of statistics and figures, but but really, you've got to be prepared. If you, let's say you're in a clinic on your own, you've got to be prepared to give all of the new patients that are coming into that clinic mm-hmm. to that new practitioner. Now, if your own list can't support that, then it's too early for you to be recruiting. That's how I see it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And if you're not, and again, as Oliver Wright said, if you're not ready for it, and you take somebody on, and you can't make them busy, then you're just going to make annoyed make them annoyed Mm. they're going to leave very very quickly and this happens all the time um we've actually just taken on an associate who was bored and irritated by their previous clinic owner because she was only seeing two patients a day and this had gone on for six months and how the clinic principal thought that that was somehow okay um i don't know so yeah the obvious thing happened but we only take people on when a we're feeling too busy to cope or B, we've got a, a lot of availability in the clinic and there's a kind of a momentum with growth so that you know with absolute certainty that once this person comes on board that you can get them busy. And yeah. as the principal, you know that even if um, even if the principal's not quite as busy, as a principal you're not quite as busy, that your own patient list is going to come back very, very quickly mm. once you've got, once you've nurtured um, and supported this associate. And it is, it is stressful. It's one of the hardest <laughs> things and it took me by surprise when I first became principal is that when you've, you've interviewed someone, you've made these, you've you put these expectations out there and then they sit there and you know, you're looking at the looking at the diary every ten minutes. We're looking to see if someone's booked in. It's the worst feeling. But absolutely. Yeah. But I I think that um, that sense of anxiety is a reflection about the degree to which you care. Yeah. You know that we've got this imperative of right. We've taken them on board because we've basically made these this person promises about their career and about their ability to support themselves and you've you've actually got that and if you're too insensitive to realize it then really you shouldn't be taking on associates yeah. at all yeah. yeah and i think i think it is really good that you worry you know in a lovely way not well, that I, you worry worry. Less, I worry less now fortunately we do have some quite sort of tailored marketing systems yeah. that we can sort of dial up dial down depending on how busy the clinic is and really when i take on someone new now I just put my trust in the system, in the marketing yeah. processes, and um, and invariably, mo- nearly always works. And also, um, yeah. Sorry, Liz, I've got um, a new, I, I took on a new uh, sports therapist about three months ago. She's not had a, 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 she's not had a not fully booked day since the day she arrived. She's fully booked every single day because as soon as she had a, as a space in her diary, she gets a, a free appointment. I give her, I give one of my favourite patients a free um, massage with her. You know, so we have all of these systems in place to make sure that when people join, they are as busy as they can be from the get go. Yeah, and one thing one thing I want to add to that is that um, 
no man i mean we i'm not pretending that we somehow can make perfect decisions about who we take on obviously we're doing the best our best and we do and um, i think we are pretty good at finding good people i mean i absolutely love our team mm-hmm. you know and our organization is only as great as it is because we have got great people but it is imperfect and sometimes we just take on somebody who kind who acts as a drag for whatever reason you know they have very high absence rates they start messing their patients around and it's very very important to nip that in the bud as quickly mm-hmm. as possible if because you have to as um a highly independent profession people are allowed to sort of manage their patient lists as they want to and if they're simply doing it wrong and hurting the clinic then they're hurting the whole team and you've got to be courageous enough just to say right they're not fitting here and um, you let them go as quickly as possible yeah. and you know and I've done it quite a few times I'm sad <laughs> to say and I'm I'm pretty good at it now and the last time we shook hands had you know had a hug and they went on their way knowing that they had a different way of doing things from our organisation. But my goodness, you know, I've, I've never had to have one of those conversations without it being a source of huge anxiety beforehand. But it's a little bit of pain that you have to take in order to make sure that things stay good. But it's a, it's a lot easier when you have a clear set of standards in place. You know, yeah. you have a set of standards for what you expect from your practitioners and they know those standards, they're aware of them and it, make, it makes things invariably run very, very smoothly. And as soon as someone does start pushing to the edge of those of those standards you know it that's when it becomes a problem if you don't have those standards in place in the first place then these things do get out of control um the you know the absence things the holiday you know the the, Uh, yeah absolutely and actually as you say the i mean the standards are all written down and when you when you have that conversation you have the you have it in front of you and you say look this is i'm I'm really sorry but these are the reasons you can be very very clear about it Mm. yeah and i think it makes it really clear for the associate and it makes it really clear for the clinic owner and i think that's so important to have those outlines like you said it's not a perfect system it never will be we're human beings we've got different things that come up in our lives different values different motivating factors of why we do things you know so there will always be those situations where people leave and new people come so I think it's really important to have that guidance so moves us on beautifully onto the support and the mentoring side so a lot of people ask about this and you see it on different forums and different clinic owners that are discussing about the mentoring side you know how do I mentor my associates what do I mentor them on you know what do we do what's the guidance around this so I feel like before I kind of dive into kind of what we've done over the the mentoring plan that I've designed for new associates you know what do you feel are the most important topics to cover from a mentoring basics basis as as clinic owners so I think it's important to um, maybe define what what does mentoring actually mean, because yeah. um, it will mean very different things to very different um, different principles. Um, you know, for me, when I joined, the idea of mentoring was how can I get improve my clinical knowledge and my hands on skills. In reality, that's not what I needed when I first joined. I spent four years learning those things. What I needed was some basics in in how to talk to my patients, how to ethically rebook them, um, how to manage people who were coming back in more pain, difficult customers, all all of all of these things. So that's that's where I think um, you know that it needs to start. Really, Jonathan always talks about this. Um, deprogramming or that needs to be done. I don't know if you want to go into <laughs> that. A bit true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, one of the things which I, I, I think after, after I graduate, one of what happened during my fourth, fourth year, especially in our final clinical year, is that I noticed who, which osteopaths were very busy and had difficulty fitting new patients in. And there were certain other student osteopaths who were just moaning because they didn't have any patients and um, they always wanted to see new patients. And actually what they were doing was just kind of batting off their patients and trying to pass their exam. And I realised that there was a certain a certain kind of person who had a certain approach to their clinic, a very to sorry, to their patients, a very a very caring, very trust promoting approach that would ultimately make them incredibly successful as an osteopath. And I also know that and, and I also knew that some of my colleagues were going to really struggle because yeah. they wouldn't be able to build up a, a strong patient list. And that's just because I've got this kind of mathematical mind. And you ju- you just you just do the maths. If your patient only comes back twice, then you've got to have an incredibly high throughput of new patients in order to gain any traction at all. Whereas this um, there was one lady, I, I I won't say what her name was, she was just a, such a nice person, but very unassuming. Um, she only managed to see 35 new patients in, in two years because wow. she was so popular, even as a student. I, I begged her to be my associate <laughs> after we graduated. Were you scouting in fourth year? Is this what was going <laughs> but, but, but what was really important was that I, it, I thought very, very carefully about what, what it was that made people... Um, what made patients trust you and want to come back? And I, there's a little story I, t- I tell my new associates um, when I when they sort of very very early on um, about a patient I saw. We we used to actually not like our maintenance patients, um, or at least the clinic used to sort of poo pooed the maintenance mm-hmm. patients a little bit. And I remember seeing um, a chap who had a, a folder that was about two inches thick who'd been coming to the clinic for at least 10 years um, and I sort of he came to the room and I asked him the normal question of um, so uh, so why have you come to see me what is it that's what is it that the problem is and the chap said well I, I haven't got a problem and I said well well why are you here and he said I'm here because I don't want a problem yeah. he said you know I'm 75 years old I feel great I look after myself and I value what you do for me. Mm. And he said, and we didn't really have to go into the what's wrong with you thing at all. I examined him. He, I found little achy areas and I gave, I was able to give him a treatment that he really appreciated mm. and he walked out feeling a whole lot better. And the light bulb went on in my head. I thought, you know, it's not just about pretending that somehow we can solve some ailment. We are a health-giving profession. Mm. We're an injury-preventing profession. And con- I think conveying that idea as part of the mentoring is profoundly so important. important. It's not about that 20% of just getting rid of that pain. It's about the 80% of life life-supporting, health-supporting therapy and encouragement about being a health partner to people and and teaching that idea. And if you can get that across, then your clinic will just take off. Yeah. 
I love that. It's almost like deprogramming and then reprogramming. So exactly. I know with um, lots of maybe associates that are listening to this podcast and lots of clinic owners, again, the, the mentoring plan that we look at, we look at the common theme, like the underpinning of all their insecurities. So what's going to be impacting their confidence as well? So some of the key topics that we cover is how to ethically rebook. You know, you're not taught that at university. You're taught how to be an expert on the body, how to diagnose, how to treat, but actually managing that short and long-term plans are just, it's just not there at university um, managing expectations as well is a really important thing you know if someone's gone to someone else before and they've been told if you get clicked once and the pain goes away mm-hmm. it might be that actually that's impossible with with their with their condition and how they are as well as you know dealing with with complaints and difficult clients again at university you've got a reception team that do all of that for you you know you don't really have to deal with the general public or complaints and stuff like that and so it's being able to have our clinic owners and our principals there to be able to guide the associates and say look this is quite normal this is okay what's happened I'm here to support you so yes we cover key topics with the mentoring every single month that one-to-one mentoring session but it's also the other additional support as well. So I don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to add. Do you feel like more can be done with the mentoring? Well, it's, no, I mean, I, I think what we're doing is great. And it's really the ethical rebooking is a really, really important um, subject because at colleges we become kind of, there is this idea of, right, as soon as your patient's better, you should discharge them. And I completely get why that's important because you don't want to create a dependency relationship with your patient. Mm. You don't want somehow to um, a patient to feel an emotional need to to come back and mm. see you and you get into an exploitation situation. And the reason why they teach that in college is because therapists can take advantage of that situation. It is absolutely wrong. But at the same time, um, you mustn't throw the baby out with the bar- bathwater. You've got <laughs> is it the bathwater or the dishwater? Well, <laughs> <laughs> you bath the baby in a dish in the sink, do you? <laughs> but the yeah, so so um, teaching somebody how you can be very honest with your patients about what they can expect, what the health supporting aspects of um, of your therapy are so that your patient can make an informed and ethical choice based on absolute hard facts about what you're doing is is right and good. And the problem that the schools have is that I don't know whether they haven't got time to go into Mm. the subtleties of what the difference or whether there's just a danger of falling into the unethical part. So Mm. you, you get people to be extra cautious, I don't know. But part of the skill of being a brilliant mentor is is being able to convey that difference yeah yeah no it it completely makes sense and I think one of the other things that I wanted to touch on um just before we go on to kind of frequently asked questions is you mentioned earlier about you know prioritizing new patients for the clients and you know helping them uh, for the new associates sorry and helping them thrive with the clients um anything else that we can do to ensure kind of success in clinic so one of the things I wanted to talk to you guys about was a really common mistake that I see in terms of kind of cost per appointment with regards to the new associate and the senior osteopath for example and different career pathways so any advice that you would have a look at in terms of kind of getting them busy or price per appointments in terms of the associate when they come into your clinic yeah absolutely I mean I think it's it's very very important to recognize the quality of the education that the person's done that they have got this 
these four years worth of knowledge and experience. And when they come out as, as a qualified physiotherapist or osteopath or whatever, they are absolutely qualified to put their hands on patients and treat them and call themselves whatever it is, mm-hmm. but in, in our case, an osteopath. So you can't then treat them as some kind of a junior. You've got to give them that status and it helps give them self-confidence, but also it's very important that they have that status in the eyes of the yeah. of their patients. And, a, and a, mis- a common mistake, which I think we mentioned in the last podcast, was that principals sometimes think, oh, well, I'm so busy, I'm going to give myself a higher salary, mm. a, a, a higher price per patient. Because the moment you do that, then the message that goes out loud and clear to your patients is that your, your associate is worth less than you, yeah. that the quality of their treatment is lower and of course, then everyone wants to come and see the principals. And then those principals are all moaning that they're just too busy <laughs> anyway, and their associates aren't good enough. And it yeah. really, it, it, it has a very negative impact on, on the atmosphere at the clinic. So I think the principal paying, you know, you say an appointment is an appointment and it costs this much, whether it's from one of the newer associates or one of the sort of very experienced principals. Mm. Um, and you stick with that. And also that sends a very clear message to the associates that their skills are really valuable. Mm, bingo, because I think a lot of the associates, you would feel like you're just rubbish, wouldn't you? If you would be, if you were like, if your appointment was like £30 cheaper than everyone else's, you just, you you know, you would encompass that whole imposter idea. And, uh, absolutely. And security. But, but then, of course, the question arises, how do you give somebody career progression? How do you, you know, if you're, if, if, if everyone's the same, then where can you go? Yeah. Right. And of course, there are things you can do because you can do invisible stuff like change somebody's commission rate. So we have a graduated set of commissions and if people reach certain milestones in terms of their busyness and patient feedback and these sorts of things, then we progress their commission. It's not to do with the amount of time they've been there. Mm. It's to do with the amount of success they're having um, as, as a practitioner. And the other thing is that on their business card, you can give them a different title. So someone can be a senior osteopath, but what you do not do is put that on the website. (laughs) It's something, so it's very much a sort of like how you're perceived within the team. Mm. And the other thing you can do is give people particular specialist skill sets, which of course is wonderful for your clinic because you can say, yes, I've got a headache specialist or I've got, what was that mum thing that we're doing? Well, the different pregnancy, pregnancy specialists yes, yes, exactly. and stuff like that, yeah. Um, so, you know, so there, so, there are, so there are these, or a qualified shockwave therapist, for yes. example. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are these specialist areas that you can th- then develop and certain certain people have that title. Mm. Okay, that has, I, the, has the benefit as, of, as well of um, you're investing in that practitioner as well, which, again, you're absolutely. building, the, the, you're growing their skill sets, you're building that loyalty, that retention. And then goes back to them feeling part of the team, which yeah. is so important. So amazing. Thanks for that, guys. The last little bit is some of the frequently asked questions. So with this part of the podcast, we try and do it where you've, you know, maybe not not necessarily know what I'm going to ask you in terms of what people have asked us. Um, so, yeah, just just go with it. Just just whatever comes to your sure. head answer. Um, so one of the first things that um, someone's asked is about expenses for the clinic. Um, and they talk about one of the biggest expenses when finding or setting up a clinic is the rent for the practice. 
is is there anything that that can be done for that you know how how could you help someone so they're wanting to set up a clinic and where they're wanting to set up everything's so expensive is there is there anything that can be done in terms of the cost of the rent well, the, the first thing they need to do is sit down and actually write down a really detailed profit and loss with all of the things that they think are, are going to cost money um yeah. how much how many patients they expect to see conservatively but you know not too conservatively because it these um, profit and losses do act as a sort of uh, um, they give the, the clinic direction and mm. it is amazing when you create a profit and loss how <laughs> accurately your clinic growth sticks to it so you know really spend a lot of time um, going for it there's there's I know there's examples online um, you know put down all of your different expenses and then you know and play around with different um, appointment costs and things like that and work out how much can you actually afford yeah. on yeah. on rent um there's nothing there's not much you can do about it. you can try and negotiate rent down but you know you're kind of stuck with the, with the market okay and and the other thing is that there's often a reason why rent is quite high say for example if you're stuck off in a cubbyhole somewhere paying 600 pounds a month in rent with no public visibility, parking's quite a long way away, you have probably struggled to get and retain new patients simply because it's not a great place to be. Yeah, yeah. And then if you're thinking about moving to a high street location with tons of visibility, it will transform how what how quickly you can grow and ultimately what size your practice can become. And Oliver's absolutely right. If you if you can make cash projections based on the experience the concrete experience of other clinics doing certain things i mean something that's happened to us where we've started up a high street clinic where you put the signs outside um maybe a, maybe a hanging sign on the high street suddenly you become a feature in the local yeah. community and it's like putting up a great big billboard for free <laughs> so you know and that and that in and of itself i mean i know that i, I don't know how much it costs to put a, a, a poster on a big billboard but i'm pretty sure it's about four or five thousand pounds a year so you gotta say okay well i'm saving that amount of money in advertising yeah. alone just doing it and so there are the, there are these huge factors that you can take account of that mitigate those higher rental costs yeah um, but yes, you, you, you always have to think about these things ambitiously, you know, and what is what is the cost of this in terms of relative to how much I think I'm going to grow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and something that, that we've done is actually start clinics in other businesses. This can be a really good way of, um, of mitigating your responsibilities um, in terms of signing long-term leases and things like that. Mm. You can do it under a licence agreement, um, possibly starting at six months or something. And there's a lot of businesses out there at the moment, cafes, pubs, gyms, all sorts of things who have space and who are desperate for that extra um, revenue. Yeah. Um, and a lot of these places make excellent um, clinics because they, you know, they, they've got, you've got all those customers coming in and the gym is going to be shouting about you as well or, or the cafe or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a fantastic point because it all depends on what stage you are at your career. If you are at a very early stage, you're a one-man band and you want to branch out and own your own clinic, that's exactly the situation that you should be looking for. Mm. Um, and having smart knowledge about what you what to look for is is so so important because yeah. because often those perfect locations are actually quite cheap mm -hmm. yeah and, and another thing to consider is the uh, the amount of rooms so let's say you're going from a one-room clinic where you might have started we don't usually recommend people to go and start a three or a four room clinic from scratch because you, you've tense. got to have a lot of money in the bank to be able to do that. Now, it's a difficult decision. Do you go for a two room clinic, a three room clinic or a four room clinic, depending on your area? There's a lot of different factors. Just note that 
the t- a two room clinic it has to be operating at absolute maximum capacity mm-hmm. for you to be able to cover all your costs and make some profit whereas a three room clinic you've got that potential to grow um, yeah. and really if you're looking at wanting to take some decent dividends for yourself the, the money's in the third room is that fair to say Johnson? Yeah no, yeah. is it the rule of thumb is that you get an extra thirty thousand pounds profit per room per year? Wow! So, um, it's no, so yeah, as, no you, small as you can amount, see, a, a four-room <laughs> clinic is hugely different from a, from a two-room clinic. Yeah. Um, in terms of what you get left over at the end of the day. That's so, that's so interesting, and, it, and it, I love it how you guys have answered that because obviously you see a lot of people would see that initial upfront cost of the rent and just panic and go, oh "My God, I can't afford it," or you know, "What do I do?" And actually, they forget about all the other costs. They forget about all the other, you know, the profit coming in and everything like that. So yes, yeah, so so important. And so the next question that people are asking is about the the system that you use for booking your patients. You know, how do, how do people book in for an appointment at the clinic? Which I know sounds very simple when we say it out loud. But a lot of people, if you've gone from being an associate, you've never had to even think about, you know, how people are going to book in. You might have been at a clinic where they use a mobile phone. You know, what, what are the best kind of booking routes? Um, so, so we use um, Clinico. I don't know if I'm allowed to say the name of it yeah. as, as our as our booking system. Sponsored by Clinico. Um, and then, obviously, uh, to, to to allow people to book in, we use a three tier reception service. So yeah. we have um, an on uh, remote reception mm-hmm. um, team um, who we pay per call to to them, um, and they do a fantastic job. Um, I think it's a couple of quid per call now, isn't it? Um, and and they're brilliant. And then people can obviously book in online through the website. And finally, we have the app as well. Now, the app. How many people are using the app now of our patients? Is it getting close to twenty percent? Oh yeah, easily. Yeah, so twenty twenty five. So, you know, we just in Devon alone, we see about 2,000 appointments a month. Um, a lot of those appointments are being used on the app. And of course, every time someone uses the app to book an appointment, we save a £2 phone call every time they use wow. it to, to reschedule or something. So it's a huge saving, which is pass, being passed down to the to the clinics. So I'm, I'm going off topic a little bit. No, 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 it's good. It's because it's, it's like I said, it, it makes sense. It's just being able to consider the different routes that, mm. are, that are out there. Absolutely. And the, 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 thing, the thing with booking is that it's, it's all about easing the patient's journey into your clinic. You want to make it as clear and simple and quick as possible. And that was one of the reasons why I created the app, is that it's, is, is we spent a, a lot of time thinking how many times does a finger have to click on the screen mm. in order to perform whatever the function is. And Oliver was absolutely great. He created all these little little diagrams with arrows pointing between the different screens and we and we worked it out how to make that journey as simple as possible and and comprehensively cover all the questions and problems that someone might might encounter during that journey and that applies to your website it applies to the instructions that you give to your receptionists um Everything, everything has to be as simple as possible. Even to your leaflets, is the booking inf- in, in information um, really obvious? Some people love to have a have a QR code, so we put those everywhere, yeah. just just to serve that section. So you also have to take into account that different types of people book in different ways, and you want to cover as many of those bases as possible. And if you do that, there's no point in marketing really, really well and getting loads of people interested in you and then sending them to a website where they just get confused or they end up mm. calling a receptionist who's a bit rude to them or, or where the number 
Yeah, or, or oh, the wrong number. Don't, I know. Or where your reception opening hours only go from like 9.30 till 4.30 in the afternoon. Or, yeah, or where they hit an answer phone. I mean, these things are absolutely crazy. Mm. You know, you want them to have a warm human voice from seven in the morning till eight at night and someone who's picking up the phone on a Sunday. If you want to make the best of that, that bo- profoundly important booking and process, and it's something that so many clinics get wrong. Yeah, mm. so, it's only was really interesting in one of our clinics uh, in Surrey, which is over the Christmas period, suddenly there was this enormous influx of bookings, and what we realised is was because all of the other clinics had shut and their receptionists were shut, um, they might have had some clinical hours there, I don't know, but suddenly all of these new patients come in because we made it as easy as possible and we were the only ones where they could get an appointment absolutely i mean i i've got a name for this actually i call i I call it the corner shop strategy (laughs) if you're (laughs) if you're the guy who's open when no one else is there then you will get the business yeah and it it (laughs) makes sense it it makes sense and it goes back to what we were doing with the marketing and all different things it's being able to diversify being able to hit the different demographic groups being able to do you know different ways of booking is, is just so important so yeah thank you guys that was really really interesting so i think like we said last time the future looks bright for private practice and i think it's so important to talk about these different topics um, and to talk about you know what really makes a thriving and successful team in clinic so for episode three it is going to be a dry one but we're going to try and make it as very exciting but we're going to try and make it as exciting as possible because we're going to be talking about admin coming out your ears what do we actually need to consider when running a clinic, you know, what are the fundamental things for running a clinic? Nine times out of ten, it's the really unglamorous, boring stuff that makes a clinic successful and makes you more successful than your competitors. So this is what we're going to be covering I next time. Actually, I like the way you said it's dry because actually that means it's stopped raining and the sun's come out because there's ways to ways to deal with these horrible jobs. Exactly. So that is what we will be covering next time. So ciao for now. Find all the episodes of the Clinic Success Blueprint podcast online at osteoandphysio.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts.